It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Today's guest, Mitch Albom, has written books that have made a difference in the lives of millions around the world. Mitch is an internationally renowned and best-selling author, screenwriter, broadcaster, and musician. His books, which include Tuesdays with Maury, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and For One More Day, have collectively sold more than 40 million copies worldwide. Mitch's work has been made into Emmy Award-winning and critically acclaimed television movies. His new book is The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Welcome, Mitch. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. So, Mitch, I am so happy to have you on the show because your work has made an impact on my life, as it has for millions around the world. So how does a sports journalist end up writing such heartwarming, thought-provoking books? Uh, well, it was a journey, uh, let's put it that way. I, I, I didn't always uh, delve in these subjects or, or write about. These are, quite frankly, wasn't the kind of person who even thought about these type of topics. I was a sports writer uh, for the first you know, 15 years of my career, uh, and a very ambitious one at that. Uh, I was in, writing for newspapers. I was on ESPN television. I did radio. I worked about 90 hours a week. Go, go, go. And then when I was 37 years old, I happened to be flipping through the TV channels and caught the Nightline program. And did a double take because there on the screen was a thin, sickly, white-haired version of an old professor of mine who I had had in college, who I'd been very close to, but hadn't seen in 16 years because I was so busy pursuing my career and my ambition. And then I found out through this program that this professor, whose name was Maury Schwartz, was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. And I only found that out because they happened to catch him on this TV program. And I felt rather guilty about it. I called them up thinking I would just make one phone call and that would be the end of it. Uh, I had a kind of a, a very sweet conversation with him on the phone. At the end, he asked if I would come visit him. So I said, well, I'll just come visit him, but that'll be one time. Then I'll be done with it. And the visit was so impressive uh, and made such an impression on me that I began to go back again and again and again, and I ended up going every Tuesday that he had left, and I sort of had a last class in what's important in life once you really know you're going to die, which Maury did. And it turned out that everything that he felt was important were things that I was not valuing in my own life. And so from that point forward, I began to turn some things around. I wrote a little book called Tuesdays with Maury just to pay for his medical bills. I was going to go back to being a sports writer and all that, uh, hopefully with a little better knowledge. And then this book, Two Days with Maury, became something I never could have imagined and sort of turned my whole life around. Tuesdays with Maury was my introduction to your work. It was a couple of years after it came out. And my dad had just passed away. And that was when I found the book. And the lessons that were part of that were, were really 
important to me in the healing of that loss. Can you tell us a little bit about Maureen and what were some of the biggest things that he taught you? Well, there were so many, uh, including death and to life, but not a relationship, meaning that if you had a good relationship with someone while they were alive, they can live on in your in your heart and your head, you know, and all the things that you shared. But only if you spent that time together while you were alive. And that was a really important thing for me. A lot of people think that, you know, they just get to the end and suddenly when they realize they're going to die, that in like the last three days, they'll make up for all the time they didn't spend with their loved ones. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Another really critical one was giving is living, which is something that I have tried to um, incorporate into my, my life. I, I had noticed that many people would come to Maury trying to cheer him up because you know, he was dying and they thought it was their obligation. But after about an hour with him, you know, they'd come out of the room crying about their divorce or their love life or their work. Or, and they'd say, I went to try to cheer him up, but he ended up asking me all these questions and I ended up crying and he ended up cheering me up. And, you know, I, I don't know why, but uh, he gave me more than I gave him. And I asked Maury once, why are you doing this? You're the one who's dying. You know, why don't you take the sympathy? And he said, Mitch, taking like that just makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And that was a profound lesson for me because I realized if this man who's really realized he's, he's you know, got weeks left on this earth and what makes him feel the most alive is giving to other people, then that has to be true for us now, you know, in our younger and healthier years. And I, I started my first charity that year and I have been, you know, kind of deeper and deeper and deeper into that world ever since. Do you remember Maury to be this type of person or did he change when he got his prognosis? No, he was, he was like that, even as a professor. Um, it was one of the reasons I loved him. You know, I took every class that he offered. All the kids loved him like that. He, I mean, I think it was more profound and I don't think he thought so much about death, uh, but he was always kind. And he would always say things like, you don't have to buy the culture if you don't like it. I mean, it's okay to be different. And uh, he, he was he was known for uh, once he went to a basketball game when he was a professor at our college and everybody was cheering, we're number one, we're number one. And he popped up and he said, what's the matter with being number two? Like he was just that kind of, uh, you know, counter sort of thinker. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure it was brought to the fore more by his imminent death, but no, he, he didn't He didn't have some gallows transformation. He, he, he was always a, a kind and, and caring and loving individual. So you had a career as a sports writer, and then you went down this journey with Maury, and, and it changed so much of your life. Did you think you would go back to sports then, or you know what kept you on this path for the types of work that you went on to write that had such an impact on so many of us? Well, to be honest, Joan, it was, it was the reaction from people, first in my community and then around the country and then around the world. I, when I was a sports writer, and I was you a know, pretty well-known sports writer, and uh, I was on television, as I mentioned, and so people would recognize me, and they would often stop me in the airport as I was walking by, and they'd say, hey, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And I would just keep walking and say, you know, the Patriots, and that was it. That's all they wanted out of me. And then after Tuesdays with Maury, it started to become this book that nobody could have figured. I mean, they only printed 20,000 copies of that book. You know, it's now sold over 20 million copies, uh, but, but, you know, nobody anticipated that. As it began to grow people would stop me in those same airports, but instead of saying who won the Super Bowl, they'd say, 
hey, uh, my mother died of cancer, and the last thing we did was read your book together. Can I talk to you about her? And, you know, you can't say patriots and just keep walking. You have to stop right. and engage. And I began to stop and engage and stop and engage and stop and engage dozens of times a day. And if I went out to a book signing or something like that, hundreds of times a day with people's stories about grief and sadness and love and, and relationships and people who were their Maury's and they would open their wallets and take out pictures and say, this was my Maury. And, and I don't know, it's just that part of the world and what really mattered in life began to overwhelm me, you know, and, and envelop me really much more than sports. And when it came time to write another book, I had no interest in writing anything about sports. I, I wanted to write about those topics, and I wrote a novel uh, just to be different because I knew I couldn't write anything like Two Days with Maury, whatever I did a nonfiction, whatever it was going to be, would pale in comparison it was six years later. So I tried this little novel called The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and it found a, you know, just as big an audience uh, as Two Days with Maury, and that began my, my life as a novelist. You know, and I, th- I think the thing is there, there are so many people – that are going through things, particularly today with, um, you know, what we've just gone through with COVID and the pandemic. And there's so much grief and so much pain and and what you write about gives all of us hope. And so how does it feel for you, uh, feel to you when someone comes up to you and tells you that you help them get through what may be the worst experience of their life? Well, I'm, I'm very gratified. Obviously, you know, anybody would be, but, but I, I try not to take the credit that I, I, I don't you know I don't I always say I, I'm not the person with all the answers so sometimes people who would read Tuesdays with Maury they would come up to me after a book signing or a speech and they would say Maury can I ask you a question and I would always say I'm Mitch someone you know I was right. the one who didn't have, you know I asked all the questions I didn't have the answers and I'm still the dumb one you know I'm still asking the questions I just ask the questions in the book and I in the books that I write and even this new one the stranger in the lifeboat which has has found such a big audience in such a short period of time. And I've been wondering myself why that is. And I think you tapped into it when you said, you know, the way that we're coming out of this pandemic with so many questions and looking for hope. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 I guess I wrote it, you know, during that pandemic and I wrote it out of the aftermath of losing a child. And, and I was looking for hope and some healing too. And, and so a lot of things that I go through, I just try to put the same kind of questions that I'm asked in the book and uh, whatever book I'm working on and pose them. And in this case, I put them in the mouths of some people who are, who are stuck on a, a life raft and uh, they're asking them of a very unusual person. But um, I ask the same questions that I think other people ask and then just try to answer them in the way that smart people in my life have taught me or experience in my life has taught me and people seem to gravitate to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about your new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat? Sure. So it begins, uh, it's probably the biggest sort of thriller book that I've ever written, an adventure thriller book. And, and it's odd because uh, people don't think of me that way, but wrapped inside of it is a very unique tale. It's, it's, it's about this luxury yacht that is owned by one of the richest people in the world. And he throws this big soiree on it with all these famous celebrities and influencers and business people. And, and uh, it's out in the middle of the ocean. It explodes mysteriously and everybody's killed except 10 people who managed to get to a life raft, five of whom are rich guests on the, from the boat and five of whom are just workers from the boat. And they're in this life raft for three days. Nobody is coming looking for them. They're running out of food and water. They see sharks. They're you know, crying out for help. They're 
they're lost and they're desperate. And all of a sudden, they see on the third day, they see this body floating in the water and they pull it into the boat. And it's this young guy, very nondescript, average looking guy, and he's alive. And they start peppering him with all kinds of questions. He doesn't say anything, he doesn't speak. And finally, one of the passengers says, Well, thank the Lord you found me. And he says, I am the Lord. And that begins this sort of uh, tale of what happens to these 10 castaways in this life raft who do not think that this guy is the Lord because he doesn't look like it. He's skinny and he gets hungry really fast and he's thirsty and he falls asleep a lot. And yet, as the days pass, things start happening. And you know, they said, what are you doing here if you're God? And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? I came because you called me. And they said, oh, so right. So you're going to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everybody in the boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. And, of course, that doesn't happen very often. Ten people don't agree on anything, you know, in this world. And yet as they get more desperate, uh, we see that some of them start to turn in that direction. And really, John, it's a, it's a book about help and when we cry out for help and I've cried out for help in the last few years, especially after losing our little girl you know, who died from a brain tumor. And um, other people have been crying out for help during COVID. You know, uh, please don't let me get the disease. Don't let my loved ones get the disease. Help this person is in the hospital. Don't let me lose my job, whatever the case may be. And I got to thinking that, you know, when it comes to asking for help, we always want our help the way we want like a sandwich in a deli you know we order it and we expect it to come out quickly and look like what we ordered and when it doesn't come right on time or it doesn't isn't what we look like we think well i'm being ignored god's ignoring me the world is ignoring me the universe isn't answering my prayers but yet five years ten years down the road we look back on that moment and we say well you know what i remember thinking how bad that was for me but if that didn't happen, then this wouldn't happen, and then I wouldn't have met this person. We wouldn't have gotten married. We're not kids. So I guess when I look back on it, maybe that was the best thing that could have happened to me. Well, if it's the best thing that could have happened to you 10 years from now, it may well be the best thing that could happen to you right now. It's just that we don't accept that because you know we want our help the way we want it, when we want it, what we think it should be. And so here's this character who's saying, I'm the Lord. I'll help you. Uh, I'll get you out of this thing. All you got to do is believe that I'm what I'm saying, and nobody wants to believe him. And I'm not saying he is or isn't God. You're gonna have to read the book to figure that out. There's more to it than than that. But but it's that whole question of what do we do when we cry out for help if if it, if it comes but doesn't look like what we expected. I over the past ten years have gone through so much loss in my life, and that's really the result of the work I'm doing now. This is why I do what I do. And one of the things I've learned is that. Everything does happen for a reason or for a, a, a greater purpose. And, and it's not easy when you're in the throes of grief to understand that. But when you look back, you really can see that there are blessings and gifts in every situation, but they're not easy to see. You mm. have to look for them, but they are there. Yeah. And, and I think that the book that you just described, there really couldn't have been a better time to put this book out. You're right about what you just said, I mean, right on the money. And it's also the angle from which we look back. You know, there's different ways to look back. And there's a moment in, in this in this book where uh, one of the passengers confronts this God character with the ultimate question, which, of course, is, you know, why do people die? And in his case, he lost his wife. 
uh, and he's, he's crying and he says, why did you take my wife? Why did she have to die? Why did you take her? And this God character says, well, why do people always ask, why did God take somebody when they die? Maybe a better question is, why did God give them to us? Why did we have them for all that time? What did we do to deserve their love or their sweetness or their memory? Didn't you have moments like that with your wife? And he says, every day. And the God character says, well, those moments are a gift, but their absence is not a punishment. I know that you cry for people when they leave this earth. People always do, but I can assure you they're not crying. And, you know, I, I wrote that honestly as much for me and, and how I have to deal with the loss of our, our, our little adopted girl as much as for the readers, but it's universal. And as I say, it's how you choose to look back on it. If you choose to look back on what you lost, you're going to feel always hankering and yearning for what you lost. If you look back on what, as what you were given and what an amazing time that you were granted to have with that person, then you're always going to feel gratitude, even if it's short. And I've had to learn how to do that with, you know, a seven-year-old who, who passed away. And you say, that's just too early. That's not enough time. What kind of God takes a child at seven? But then you realize that there are people in the world who have their children for three months. There are people who have their children for a week. There are people who have their children for 20 minutes in a hospital. And, and by that comparison, seven years is an eternity. So it all depends on the way you choose to look back. And if you look back in gratitude, it doesn't hurt as much. And I think that's what the stranger in the light boat, you know, it's one of the lessons that happens in this, in this light boat out in the middle of the ocean that, that this character learns. Mitch, earlier we touched upon a lesson that you had learned from Maury that giving is living. And you do a lot of charitable work. Can you just tell us briefly about some of your charities and how our listeners can get involved and help? Well, sure. Um, I mean, that's kind of you to ask. I, I, as I said, in 1995, I started my first charity here in Detroit, and uh, it's grown into something that's quite large now. It's an organization called Save Detroit. We have nine different charitable operations that include uh, daycare uh, operations for children of, of women who are in transition, or transitional housing, or going through rehab, or whatever, or trying to get jobs, and don't have anybody to watch their children. From kids as young as five days old all the way up to two and a half years. We have uh, the nation's first medical clinic for homeless children and their mothers. Uh, we have an after-school center that has 300 kids in it uh, uh, with uh, computer programming and recreational things and all like that. We have uh, uh, working homes, working families program where we have houses and then uh, we give them to families that are working and if they keep the house up nice and make the taxes and utility payments. After two years, we give them the keys uh, and they own the house and many programs like that here in Detroit. And then I operate an orphanage in Haiti that I'm at every month for 12 years that I've been there every single month. And we have 53 children that we raise there. Haiti, as you probably know, is a terribly, terribly difficult place, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and the second poorest in the world. And right now going through some terrible violence and gangs and kids there just don't have a chance, especially orphan kids. And we have 53 of the most amazing kids that we not only nurture and feed and take care of medically and all that, but we have a school and they go to school four hours in English, four hours in French every day. And they're on track to graduate to go to college. And, and every one of them has a college scholarship lined up here in America. Four of them are already here. 
uh, come next summer, we'll have 10 here. And uh, their goal is to you know, get educated here, but then go back to Haiti, work at the orphanage for two years to give back, and then go into Haiti Haitian society and make their country a better place. And I have to tell you that the time that I spent in Haiti every month, the, you know, I sleep right there at the orphanage, and my bed's right in with the kids, and, and you know, it's a four-inch mattress on a, on a piece of wood with, with pillows that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't hold up a mouse. But I sleep better there than, than uh, anywhere in the world, including here, even at home in Michigan, because I guess I know that I'm doing something important and I feel needed. And I highly recommend that for anybody who's looking for contentment in their life. Just find somebody who needs your help and you'll be, you'll be amazed at how good you feel about your days. And our listeners can learn more about these charities on your website, MitchAlbom.com. Yep, and uh, the uh, orphanage is HaveFaithHaiti.org, HaveFaithHaiti.org, and the uh, Detroit charities are SayDetroit.org. The book is The Stranger in the Lifeboat. If you'd like to learn more about Mitch and his work, once again, you can visit MitchAlbom.com. And Mitch, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Oh, well, you said something about hope a little earlier, and... um, I think that that's really important. I think uh, there was once a book critic who was trying to take a you know jab at me, um, dismissing my work and said, uh, he's the king of hope. And I smiled at that and said, if that's a pejorative, if that's a bad thing, I'm all for it. You know, you can, you can insult me that way anytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think we, we live in a, in a country where too often we just feel that anger and vitriol and 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 uh, being louder than the next guy is, is all that matters. And the kindness and things like that are out of fashion and, uh, and, and 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 stupid. And that's not the case. And the, if you, if you don't wake up every day with a, a good helping of hope, um, this is a difficult world to navigate. But if you if you have that gratitude, like I was talking about before. If you uh, if you believe in something, you know I, I I called the this book the stranger in the lifeboat for a reason because I feel that we're all kind of in a lifeboat in this world. You know we have a lot of bumpy waves. There's the occasional shark. There's many storms. We're all trying to navigate our way through. That's the lifeboat part. The stranger part is your belief system. If you don't believe in anything, if you have no hope, then you're alone in that boat and uh, that other force in that boat is always going to be a stranger to you and you're not going to know it, embrace it, deal with it. But if you believe in something, whether it's God or humanity or the universe or just a sense of hopefulness for the human race, then that stranger ceases to be a stranger and it becomes your belief system. It becomes what you lean on and what you embrace and what you hold on to in the dark stormy night, you know, and, and you're not alone in that lifeboat. And so I would just hope that nobody feels uh, hopeless uh, because there's nothing sadder than that. And, and, and if you have hope, then you always have a companion and things can always improve and get better. And, uh, you know, that would be my wish to not only come out of this conversation, but, but for the world. And that's what I try to do in my books and, and, you know, try to leave people with that message when they turn the last page. Mitch, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. Thank you so much 
for spending this time with us. I'm so happy that you have joined us on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Joan. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.